This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am flattered they elevated me to having a JD, which is a law degree, but I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. This is All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. This is Jordan Rich reminding you to all rise. We've got a great podcast for you today. Jordan, can you tell us what it's all about? So joining us today is a great panel. We're going to be talking about a bizarre and dramatic case in a town called Wellesley, Massachusetts, which is a Tony suburb of Boston where crimes like the kind we're going to be talking about don't often happen. In fact, they rarely happen, ever. And with us is the author of a book called A Murder in Wellesley. He is Tom Farmer, who was a reporter at the time covering the case. And boy, Diane, we are so lucky to have uh, retired court officer Bill here, who actually uh, was in the courtroom along with uh, those involved dealing with this. It's a fascinating case. I guess, Diane, we should have Tom explain, you know, basically what happened here. Yeah, that's great. Before you do, I just wanted to ask Tom, um, is this the first book you ever wrote? Yes. Okay. And you were a journalist in the Boston area, and I understand that you work for two of the big newspapers. Right. I worked for the uh, the Lynn item for 10 years. I worked at the Boston Herald for about nine, very briefly at the Globe after that. And then I finished up uh, up in Gloucester as the city editor for the Gloucester Times. So were you assigned to cover the De- the Grenadier case, which took place in Norfolk Superior Court in Dedham, Massachusetts? Yep. And is that how you met Court Officer Bill? That's how uh, I think we had met Bill before that because no anytime, way, yes, sir. <laughs> anytime we went to Dedham for something, Bill was our Bill was one of the great great people in the court system. Treated us very very well. Was very well liked by all the reporters and media. And so anytime we went to Dedham, we, it was a it was a happy place to go to. And Bill, you have stories that you can regale us with, and and we'll do it in future podcasts perhaps as well. But tell us your role in the Grenadier case before we have Tom review the the summary here. Okay, um, he was arrested, uh, Wellesley uh, State Police, Wellesley Police, and then they brought him into us, and then <clears throat> they were going to do the trial. Paul Chernoff was the judge in the trial and was a really nice guy. Uh, it took us about a week to pick a jury. Uh, my job was to watch the defendant, Dirk Grenadier, all the time to make sure, you know, if he had any any problems or anything, he'd come to me. Uh, but he was very uh, stoic, very quiet uh, to himself. And I always remember this. When we're picking a jury, the judge would say, uh, would you like to join us on this jury? Which was really amazing with a judge like Paul Chernoff. But um, he had a very diversified bunch of jurors. But one juror was on that he excused. She says, she looks at him. And, you know, he was in for, in a sense, that uh, he murdered his wife. They died him. He, she looked at him and she says, oh, he's Teutonic for me. And if you didn't know what the word Teutonic is, do you know what it means? German. German. Yeah. Very German. Uh. Yes, 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 ah. yes. Yes. So that was one of the things when, when she said that, well, you know, she was excused. But this jury was uh, really good. They'd go home at night until they were um, deliberating. And that's when they locked them up. And, you mm. know, and then when you when you do locked up juries, and I probably must have done a dozen over the years, you get to know people pretty well. You go in a room, you sit down, you talk about everything except the case. And then you have to watch out, make sure well, what's on TV. 
because the jurors must keep away from all forms of media so they won't be tainted or influenced by something they may hear. Their verdict must be based only on what they hear in the courtroom. Right. That's it. Yeah, so that's what, what my job was basically to just to deal with Dirk. I mean, I keep my eye on him every place. I, he'd, he'd ask me if he could do something. I'd say, okay, if it was all right, I would. If it wasn't, I, w- I would say, no, you can't do that, and that's it. But a very, very quiet. Uh, Mild-mannered? Not, I don't know about mild-mannered. I usually try to once in a while crack jokes with some of the people, defendants I'm dealing with. Yeah. Now with him, basically he was cold. He was a cold person. I think. No doubt about it. I think yeah. at this point, before we delve any further into what happened at the trial, and boy, are we thrilled, Diane, to have Bill here. Should we have Tom give us a recap as to the crime itself? Tom, you wrote about this extensively. Tell us what basically happened in 1999. So on Halloween morning, 1999, it was a beautiful Sunday morning. The temperatures were. Um, up in the 70s, you know, for October. Dirk and his wife, May, were regulars at Morse's Pond. They had two German Shepherds, and they often went there um, to walk their dogs. Uh, On this particular morning, they took one of the dogs, and um, they went down to the pond at about 8.30 or so in the morning, and this was also daylight savings time, so the clocks had gotten turned ahead or whatever. Um, and they were on their walk. There was a gentleman by the name of Bill Keir, who was also walking his dog in the pond area that day. And he saw Dirk come out from a wooded area with his German Shepherd walking very quickly um, and then head down another pathway and he lost sight of him. And then Dirk came back out and came up to Bill Keir and asked him if he had a cell phone. And Keir said, no, he didn't. And then Dirk said, my wife's been attacked. So then Dirk went up this long access road to where his car was parked. He had a cell phone in his car. He called police. He made this dramatic 911 call um, that my wife's been attacked. I think she might be dead. So, of course, all the police showed up um, and they found May Grinder um, horribly, horribly murdered. Um, she had uh, her throat literally cut. Um, and they subsequently found that she had been attacked with a hammer, like a mini sledgehammer, and she had been stabbed uh, a number of times, um, and she was obviously deceased. Right. May I ask a question here? How old was she at the time? Uh, they, she was, fi- I think they both were 58 at the time. Um, they had three grown children, right? Grown children. All graduates of Yale University. Yeah, they had two daughters and a son, two of them. Two of them went to Yale law school. The second daughter went to Yale, and she dropped out of Harvard Medical School, I believe. So these were three very highly accomplished children. You know, they were like number one and two in their classes at Wellesley High School. Um, They were very competitive um, swimmers, I believe. They were on the swim teams at Yale. So this was like the all-American family type situation. Um, with three highly accomplished adult children. And they had recently become empty nesters. Um, so it was not uncommon for them, you know, to take these walks on um, mornings down at the pond. Mm. Um, you- I'm not sure if we mentioned this, but he was a world-renowned allergist. Highly regarded aller- allergist, researcher as well. Um, he had a, a big, uh, big practice We've had people come up to us in the past. Uh, I I co-wrote this book with uh, Marty Foley, who was the lead 
state police detective on the case. And we've had people come up to us and say, he was my doctor. You know, I went to see him. He was great. He was really good with childhood asthma, um, helped a lot of people whose kids, you know, suffered from asthma. So he was very well known, uh, highly respected. And um, when he came under suspicion for this, it was really a shock to the community and to the people that knew him. Let me ask a question, Diane, if you if you don't mind, about his double life, because that's a huge part of the story that you write about, Tom. And I'll, then I'll go to Bill for his take. He was known as the pillar of the community and had this quiet, you know, reserved personality that everyone knew about on the outside. But he was a different character, we found out, much different in his super private life, private from his wife. What was he like? In the months and weeks leading up to the murder, he was uh, consorting with uh, prostitutes. He had joined a adult dating service to attempt to meet people to have sex. He was doing phone sex. He was on the internet. Um, and all of this activity was building and building and building. Um, you know, in the week prior to the murder, he had gone on a um, medical um he, he attended a lot of conferences and, and lectured at these conferences around the country. And he had, he was in New Jersey. He had a prostitute come to his room at like three o'clock in the morning. Um, he had joined this adult um, dating service. He was reaching out to people to try to meet. So there was this furious amount of extramarital activity that was going on leading up to the murder. And we don't know if May knew about it. There's some indication that she may have seen something on his computer based on there was a workman in the house one time and he heard like a small argument between them or Dirk asked her if she had been on his computer, but she never confided into anybody that she knew that um, she knew about this activity. So that's one of the mysteries of the case that only Dirk can answer. The big question is why he did this is, is an unanswered question that only he can answer. And so far, he has refused to uh, acknowledge anything other than the fact that he he claims to be innocent. And um, I don't believe he's ever going to admit to what he did. Diane, you want to ask something or, or should I follow up? Well, you know, I, I have to just say that I was not on this murder trial. I was sitting and working in another courthouse at the time. But as a layperson, as I followed it, I mean, it made national news. But I, I think of his double life and I say to myself, that doesn't make a murderer, number one. And number two, why wouldn't he have just left his wife? Nobody looks twice today when people get divorced. So that, those are just two things that, I, that sprung out at me that didn't hang together. That's all. Just you know, with a lot of these domestic violence murderers, you know, the police never went to the house. There was no indication that he physically abused her. But these domestic violence murders, it's it is a pattern and it's it's about control. It's the domestic violence is a way to try to control someone and taking somebody's life is the ultimate act of control. And for some reason, divorce was not an option for him. And, you know, he was, as as Bill said, he was very um, he was very sure of himself. And, and you know, um, he was this highly regarded, world renowned allergist. So. His reputation meant everything to him and probably the relationship with his children. Um, if, if they were to find out what he was doing, that that potentially could be, you know, that relationship could be irreparably damaged. So in his mind, in order to control the situation, 
his 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 only option in his mind was to get rid of May and to keep that family intact, as crazy as that sounds. So we think that just, you know, talking to experts that this was just another classic domestic violence case. He was, you know, a sociopath. And this was some attempt to keep control of a situation and to keep his reputation intact. Um, by way of background, Dirk was born in Germany uh, in 1940 at the height of the Nazis. And his father was a doctor um, in the German military. After the war, they somehow made it to Lebanon. And he grew up in Lebanon um, and then went to Yale in like 1962. So he had dual citizenship to Lebanon and the United States. Um, so there is that Nazi background to him, right? And that's hmm. what Bill was trying to say when he was Teutonic. He had that cold, icy, Teutonic, you know, persona. And that was in his background behind of all of this. So there's so many different things under the surface with Dirk that you, we can only kind of piece together because without his input and in, in why he did some of these things, hmm. you can only speculate. Now, I just wanted to ask Bill, as from the court officer's standpoint, how crowded was the courtroom? How many court officers would work on a murder trial like this? And his three children were there every single day and maintained that he was innocent, never believed he'd be capable of this. They probably still do. Yeah, it was a fairly uh, crowded courtroom. Um, the, the kids were there every day, front row. Uh, his youngest daughter, I would still, still say today she still believes he didn't do it. But there was a lot of media there. There was court TV there. It was uh, on court TV uh, every day. Uh, if you turn on your TV set, you'd see it. Uh, I got to know the guys. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were from Kentucky that were the cameramen and sound guys, and they were pretty good guys and everything. So, uh, yeah. Uh, usually something like that, five court officers. One would take the judge. One would take the jury. Uh, one would probably be like myself. I'd be watching Dirk and then, yeah, other People, uh, the other two would just be watching, making sure everything is right with the, with, the, with the crowd that's in there, the public. Tom is talking about this guy, and you got to understand, this guy was cold. He was, he was somebody that, you know, he would never crack a smile. Like I said, I tried it once in a while to crack jokes or whatever, but, and he was always that, he was always so sure of himself all the time. There's no doubt that I believe that if, once he killed her, and if they didn't find him as the one who did it, then I think that uh, money was a big factor probably later on. I think th and then he could go uh, get along with his life, which was, uh, you know, into sex and every other thing that we don't even really know about in a sense, you know. He's one of these guys that's out there that, uh, nah, he's cold. Yeah, there's an arrogance to him. And, and people, people described him, he didn't have a lot of bedside manner. He was very matter of fact in the way he treated patients. And like Bill said, you know, he's not the guy that you go out and have a beer with and have a few laughs, you know. Um, he was very serious and very focused. You know, that, that family did everything together. I mean, when those kids went back to college every year, the whole family went, you know, Dirk was – you know, hanging up window shades. And, you know, I mean, you know, when my parents dropped me off at school, I was like, hey, see you later, you know. <laughs> this was, they were not like that. They they didn't seem to have a lot of outside friends. They kind of did a lot of things as a family. They took family trips. So it was very, probably the kids probably will know what was going on in that house, but there was probably a lot of things going on in that house that we don't know about. Can we get to the particulars, get back to Sunday morning, and can you tell us what happened? 
So after the police uh, all arrived. At Morse's Pond in Wellesley, their hometown. Right. Okay. A public pond, secluded, wooded. A lot of people go there to walk their dogs. A lot of people walk. And it's obviously in the summertime, it's a, it's a recreational swim place. This was a big deal in Wellesley because they hadn't had a murder there in like 30 years. And um, so state police showed up. The Wellesley police showed up. So now Dirk tells them the story. Walking with my wife. She's got a bad back. She tripped. She, she threw her back out. She wanted me to continue on with the dog because I, I guess they took the dog for a swim. So she said, I'll wait here. You take the dog for a swim. So Dirk said that's what he did. When he came back, he found her horribly attacked, in which time he you know, went out to get help. Well, what they noticed was that he was covered with blood. He had a swim team windbreaker on, jeans, white sneakers, there were little dots of blood on the sneakers. There were smears of blood on his jacket. There were dots of blood on his jacket. Um, his hands were completely clean. Um, and Marty Foley asked him um, about his hands uh, because the cuffs, the cuffs of the windbreaker were soaked in blood. And then all of a sudden there's his white skin. And he asked him, did you wash your hands? And Dirk said, no, I didn't wash my hands. So they continued to question him, and then they brought him back to the Wellesley Police Station because they asked him if they could take his clothes because they were obviously stained in blood, and they felt that they would be evidence and that they would be needed. Was DNA ever found on, I mean, was this a DNA case? It was, but they found DNA on the gloves that the murderer wore. In, in the, the, the murder weapons were the hammer, a, you know, a buck knife that you, a folded, folded open knife, and um, these two, this pair of gloves, um, brown work gloves with the plastic rubber dot palms, the jersey dot. And it turns out that these particular gloves were only sold at Deals Hardware in Wellesley, where Dirk was a big shopper. Mm. So um, they gleaned some DNA from the knife in the gloves, but they never yielded a complete profile. That, of Dirk's profile. The profiles that they did identify, he could not be excluded from. So the DNA was not a big, um, not a big persuasive thing with the jurors. Neither was the secret double sex life, believe it or not. The thing that they found very interesting in that they convicted him on was the blood spatter that was on him because it was easy to understand and easy to explain. The science of it in, in the description of it, Dirk would have had to have been within one or two feet of her when they had what they described as the bloodshed incident, right? The blood is let, it comes out, it gets on him. The size of the little dots indicates the velocity of it. That was like medium velocity spatter would be coming from like a knife wound or a head wound. High velocity would be coming from a gunshot wound. It would be like mist. And low velocity would be like blood dripping from your fingers. So he's got all this medium velocity spatter on him. And then he's got blood smears from where they believe, you know, he had picked her up, you know, her head flops and she's bleeding. So he's got all these smear stains on him. So that evidence ended up becoming very crucial. The other thing that led them to Dirk was when he came out of where May had been killed and Bill Keir saw him, Instead of Dirk running up to Bill Keir yelling, hey, my wife's been attacked. Help me, help me, help me. He went down another pathway at the pond and Who disappeared. Did Dirk, did? 
Dirk did. Dirk was observed by the other gentleman that was there with the dog. Yes. And then Dirk came out of that area and then approached Bill Kier and asked if he had the cell phone. My wife's been attacked. Later on that afternoon, when the police went, when, when Kier told them that he had gone down that path, they went down there with a canine and there was a storm drain covered with leaves and the canine hit on a scent. And inside that catch basin, they found one of the gloves, the knife and the hammer. Where was the other glove found? The other glove was found uh, a day or two later, all the way up at the entrance of the pond where Dirk had parked his car in another storm in another storm drain. So we think what happened was in his haste, he comes out, he sees Bill Kier. He's like, crap, I got to get rid of this stuff. Now, his whole plan's gone out the window now. Whatever he was going to do to get rid of the stuff, he's improvising now because Bill Kier sees him. And they know each other because Dirk's dogs had tried to attack Kier's dog in the past. So when Kier saw Dirk with his German Shepherd, he had this little Yorkie. He reached down and picked up his dog. He knew who Dirk was. So Dirk must have left one of the gloves on. And Kier doesn't remember him seeing gloves on. But when Dirk got up to his car to call 911, he must have looked down and went, oh, my God, I still wearing a glove. So he ditched the other glove in the storm drain. Wow. Dirk was in the three places that only the killer could have been and seen by witnesses. Coming out from where May's body was, down the path where the um, the murder weapons were found, and up at his car where the other glove was found. And that resonated with the jury because those people that were in the pond that day, there was a jogger, there was Bill Keir, there was a guy who had done a circuit around the pond that morning that didn't see Dirk or anybody. Nobody saw a stranger. Nobody saw you know, some crazed person running through the woods. And and I think that Dirk tried to model this case after the Irene Kennedy murder in Walpole eight months before. Three W towns, Westwood, Walpole, Wellesley. And that would throw a curve to Dirk. Dirk must have thought to himself, gee, this is great. There's been two unsolved daytime murders in a, in a place where people go to walk their dog. Can you speak to that? The, the situation he described to the police about him and, you know, leaving his wife to go on and then come back and find her dead was very similar to the Irene Kennedy case. This was an elderly couple uh, in their 70s, and she was in better shape than he was. So they would walk around Bird Park in Walpole, but he would only go part of the way because it was too much for him. So she would like complete a loop and come back and meet him while she didn't come back. And he went looking for her and found her horribly murdered, stabbed, you know, sexually mutilated. Um, so it was a really big case. And this was eight months before May's murder. And then a month before May's murder, there was an elderly gentleman named Richard Ranger who was fishing very early in the morning at Buckmaster Pond in Westwood. And someone found him injured. At first they thought he had like a head wound. They thought maybe... He had had a heart attack and caught his fishing, whatever. But when what they found out later when they did the autopsy was like somebody had taken like a sword-like weapon, chopped into his head. The first responders came and like, you know, in their effort to try to save him, like they obliterated like any footprint evidence that would have been there. So they never really had any real evidence. They believe they know who did it. But at the time of May's murder, there was that specter of there was a serial killer running around Norfolk County, killing elderly people in towns that began with W. Towns where nobody would, there's virtually no crime, let alone a murder.
But they did tie the Walpole murder by DNA to somebody else. Yes, a guy by the name of Martin Guy, who had been convicted of another murder in Norwood shortly before May's trial. Right. Um, And then a couple years later, the the DNA that, that he had to provide for being convicted was matched to the Kennedy killing. And they believe he's a suspect in the Ranger murder, too. Um, when they arrested him, he got into a fight with somebody at a rooming house in Norwood. And when they arrested him, they found all these like sword-like weapons and books on serial killing. So um, he's been tied to two murders. He's been convicted of two murders. He probably did the Ranger murder, but they don't have the evidence to link them to it. Knew Martin very well. <laughs> Wrecked all those cases, too. Um, he, uh, he used to... Uh, watch TV. I remember um, years ago that you'd see all these knives on, on TV, these ads, you know, there were huge knives or whatever. Well, that's what he sent away for. And that's what he had in his house. And that's one of the things. But the guy was, I got to tell you, dealing with him. He was, a, he was a pleasant guy. I mean, you'd never think about him being such a vicious killer murderer. I, I had no problem with him at all. But He's the type of guy, and he wasn't a big guy, and uh, if you saw him in a bar or whatever, a restaurant, you'd, he'd be the last person you'd think that would do something like this. But he had the uh, he had the neighborhoods there, and everybody else saw him high alert. Everybody started to freak out, especially like what Tom would say, you know, probably back to the Herald, that, hey, you get somebody killing people, older people, and you can't go out early in the morning or whatever because you don't know what's going to happen. And this is one of these things that the people in the neighborhoods and around are very, very uh, cautious. And they were very upset about nobody was being caught. But Martin Guy, was a, he was a vicious killer. He was like a jerk grenadier, no doubt. In these cases, gentlemen, uh, you have pretty smart people. Dirk Grenadier, a very smart man, academically and with a medical degree and well-respected, and yet it seems as though it's the easiest case in the in the world to crack if you're an investigator. Even that being said, you have to get it right. Talk a little bit, Tom, at first about the investigation and, and your co-author and what role he played. So they, um, you're, you're right, uh, Dirk was a great doctor, but he was a bad murderer. So they didn't arrest him right away, okay? He, um, he went to the police station. Um, someone came down with clothes. They let him go home. He, he came under suspicion that afternoon when they found the murder weapons in the area where he had been. So now they have to stop building the case because they don't have the smoking gun. Okay. So they convened a grand jury and um, the grand jury heard from a number of witnesses over several months so the murder was on Halloween 1999, and he was indicted at the end of February 2000. Um, it was a huge, huge story because that's when all the double life stuff came out. They had to build a case against him. They had to get the DNA. They had to get the blood spatter evidence. They had to interview all the witnesses. They went down to the pond on consecutive weekends to just greet people that were shown. Were you here last weekend? They started to find, they did a search warrant, which we didn't know that first night, the night of the murder at like one in the morning, the following morning, they did a search warrant at his house. They were looking for packaging for like the knife or the hammer. A couple of weeks later, they did another search warrant and they took his computers. And that's when they started to find the evidence of the secret double life. And so now they're putting all this together and 
Marty Foley and Rick Grundy, the prosecutor, were not in a huge hurry to indict Dirk because once it's before the grand jury, they control it. Once you indict somebody, now they're, they they um, they get they have they have a right to a speedy trial. So now they're on the defensive now because they've got to start sharing discovery and they've got to get ready for a trial. So the DA at the time was, was pressuring them to indict because, you know, this case people kept asking, you know, who did it? Dirk was under suspicion. He had had a lawyer. Um, he, you know, he, the DA wanted to get this thing, wanted him charged. And, and so ultimately they, they indicted him and the district attorney, and this is in the book has this, press conference at the DA's office where he summoned the media against the advice of the investigators. And he laid the whole thing out and it happened at like around six o'clock. So it was on all the live news and our jaws were dropping because he's talking about secret double lives and hookers. And, you know, this was a really big case. And then all of a sudden you throw that stuff in there and it was just like throwing gasoline onto the fire. So that's, when this thing really became sensational and really blew up, probably why the trial was so heavily covered because, um, you know, it was a sensational, sensational case. It really was. Hey, Tom, I just want to uh, interject Rick Grundy. He was a, uh, he wasn't uh, really a DA in Norfolk County. He was Essex County. No, he was the, um, he was the first assistant in Norfolk. Okay. Was He was the first, okay. He, so, yeah, he okay. prosecuted um, Dirk. He prosecuted the Martin Guy case. He, he lived up in Essex and he ran for Essex DA up there, but... Um, That's probably what I'm thinking about that. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah but who represented Dirk Grenadier? Who were the defense team? Martin, Martin Murphy, um, an outstanding, outstanding attorney. He's a partner at like Bingham Dana now. He was a longtime former prosecutor and this was his first murder case as a defense attorney in his last, by the way, um, <laughs> because... Uh, I don't think Dirk was very straight with him early on. And I no, think Marty, no. Marty was kind of a true believer for a while. And then it all, as all this stuff kept coming out and he kept seeing the evidence, I think, I think he knew that, um, that Dirk wasn't, you know, as innocent as he was claiming to be. Um, and Mark, Marty and um, Rick knew each other. They were friends. Rick was was in Middlesex County for a long time, and that's where Marty Murphy was like the first assistant, I think, before he left. So they were very familiar with each other. They knew each other. Um, So it was like a heavyweight battle during the trial because you had two excellent, excellent trial attorneys and they went at it tooth and nail with the witnesses. they really had the Rick really had to build a wall of evidence to convince the jury that Dirk did it because they didn't want to believe that that he did it. Um, we interviewed the jurors; they were fantastic. They gave us so much great insight. Thanks to Judge Chernoff because they saw the media circus every day, and they said to, to when the trial was over, they were like, "Judge, what do we do?" You know, and he said, "The media is going to come after us." He said, "I think you should talk to him." They came out as a group and they let us interview them and the, the insight that they provided. And then we interviewed again for the book was, I mean, was really um, compelling. And, you know, and that fourth day of deliberation, they didn't want to convict this guy, but they just came to the conclusion based on all the evidence that he had to have been the killer without reasonable doubt. And 
The verdict was very dramatic. I mean, Bill was there right next to Dirk. The judge comes in. It's all rise. The jurors are standing. They're looking at Dirk. Dirk's looking at them. We're looking at it all like, you know, no matter what happens, it's going to be one of those things that you always remember. And it was. Um, and then the foreman looked right at Dirk and delivered the guilty verdict. And you could see a little bit of the steam go out at Dirk. And then, then Bill came in immediately to put the cuffs on him. One of my favorite spot news photographs of my journalism career, Patrick Whittemore was the Herald photographer. He was the pool guy that day. And that was on that photo of Bill putting the cuffs on Dirk was like huge on page one of the Herald under the big giant headline guilty. It was very, very dramatic. And um, it was emotional too, because May kind of became not the focus. She was the victim. It was all about Dirk's trial. Is Dirk guilty? She became relegated to like the victim, you know? So for the investigators to get justice for her was very emotional for them, very emotional for them. And, um, and for May's sister and niece, who originally backed Dirk, but quickly came to realize that his stories weren't ringing true. And that once that they spoke to the investigators, they believed that he had done it and they cooperated with the investigation. So there was that dynamic of Dirk's kids there supporting him and then May's relatives across the aisle there to support the prosecution. And they had been very, very, very close before this. They, Belinda used to, the niece used to come up every summer with her kids and stay at the grind at her house. And so this, this whole thing split the family and um, that dynamic of it was obviously one of the focuses of the trial because it was that dichotomy of the support from the kids and the not support from May's relatives. You know, I, I was going to tell Tom, well, he knows this, but uh, this trial was done in the summertime and it was friggin' hot and there's no air conditioning in the main courtroom. There is and, now. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> they have it now. <laughs> yeah, finally. Yeah, 20 years later. Years, all- <clears throat> but the bottom line is, is that we'd have to chill out the courtroom and then open up the windows. And so we had, we had to make sure that it wasn't too loud outside. But it was hot and it was uh, suppressive. And a lot of times we go across the street in district court because the judge Chernoff uh, wanted uh, to cool off a little bit and we'd have some motions and things over there, which is interesting. The sad part about this is like what Tom says is that his, his kids really believe he is still innocent. And with all the, um, with, with all the media, with all the evidence and everything, and I believe two of them now are doctors. And I think one of them went to Michigan. If that, I'm just trying, I'm trying to go way back when. But it's sad. I mean, here is their mother dead. The father did it. And they're staying with the father. I mean, it, it, mm. it's, it's something that's bizarre. It really is. It's, it's totally bizarre if you could think about it. And the other thing about it was when, when Tom was talking about the, uh, the jurors, this, this is a very interesting case. It's been on, I think, another 48 hours. It's been on City Confidential. It's been on a lot of the news programs that are out there. When Dirk was testifying, he took the witness stand in his own defense. And I had to stand in back of the door, uh, which is in back of the witness stand, so the jurors wouldn't see me. Because uh, 
If he get out the door, he was down the stairs and he could be out the building real quick. Can I just comment here, Bill, and tell me if you agree with me from working in the courthouse and, you know, working on many trials over the years as we have. I found it interesting that Dirk Grenadier took the stand because in my experience, accused murderers never take the stand. I can't say never, but it's really, really, it's a rarity. Do you agree? I agree. Yes. But it's the, the thing also is, is that uh, if the prosecution has a case that's not airtight, okay, or if uh, there's any doubt in the jurors' minds, then the, the attorney will talk to the defendant, and it, as in this case, Dirk Renegade, and say, you know, it might be better that you can convince this jury, that you, you, you can convince them that you did not do this crime. So, I mean, it, it, it depends on the case. It's something like, like it's got to be airtight. I mean, this was a tough case, and, you know, it basically comes down to the DNA. And, and a lot of other things. And like I said before, the dog did him in. The dog was the one who found the gloves and the knife in the uh, the sewer drain. So I'm sit, sitting out back and listening. And then he, he starts talking about her and, and her, her death and everything. And he starts crying as he's giving his testimony. Well, the jury's looking at him. But after the case is over and they were interviewed and everything, uh, one of the jurors came out with a great line. He's the only person I know that was crying that there were no tears uh, that were shed. Interesting, huh? Here he's crying. There's no tears shed. And it's like, what is it made up like everything else, you know? And the other thing was with the DNA testimony. Gosh, it was long. I'm talking four days and it was boring. Talk about, you know, uh, there was a place, I think, in uh, Maryland, and I can't think of uh, the name. Selmark. They get these doctors and these these uh, these people up there that are brilliant. Well, you know, you've heard the term rocket scientist. Well, that's exact. These people are smarter. And I'm sitting there going, I have no idea what they're talking about. I don't think the jury knew what they were talking about. But then we come back and say, oh, it's like uh, 275 million for one on this and that. And I'm like, but that was uh, that was uh, some interesting parts of the case. Uh, uh, that was, uh, the, prosec- the prosecution's DNA expert was Robin Cotton, who um, became famous from the OJ trial. That's right. Yes. Right. Yeah. And she, she testified, like like Bill said, for like three days. And it was one day, it was like 90 degrees in that courtroom. It was like a Friday afternoon and everybody was just done. Um, it was so dense. And the reason why it went on so long was not because of the prosecution. It was because of... Marty Murphy on his cross-examination was trying to poke holes in all the stuff. And it was so down into the weeds that, you know, that's why I think a lot of the jurors just kind of dismissed it because it, there was no smoking gun from the DNA and you can interpret it different ways. It's, I mean, and, and the technology then was nothing like it is now. I mean, it was kind of in its infancy then. So but yeah, the, the DNA testimony was really tough. I think everybody was so happy to get out of there that day. But I had to wait to make sure that Dirk was the last one to leave the courthouse at the end of the day. He was shackled and handcuffed and let out through the back door into a waiting sheriff's van and taken back to jail. And you had to wait for him because the jurors don't know that he's in custody, right? That's right. Because the jury couldn't see him. They, they, they did not know. Jurors don't know that if you're in custody because... You know, he couldn't wear handcuffs, he couldn't wear leg irons. And then you really have to be careful because you don't know how he's going to react at certain situations with different people. 
But uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time with him, and uh, it was just one of those things. But I always remember the, the heat. It was so friggin' hot, and uh, <laughs> I just, you know, just, just couldn't wait to, you know, get me out of here, you know? And like uh, Diane was saying, yeah, well, that's great, you know, the air conditioning. I've been working. 20 different courts in, in uh, the state and, and a lot of them have, you know, they have the heat that's, that, that doesn't work in the winter and the air conditioning doesn't work in the summer. How yeah. old is it? 150, 20 years yeah. old? It's beautiful, yeah. but it's obsolete. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, you have to work it. Bill, you know, I'm glad you said that because I, in previous podcasts, I've touched upon working in buildings that aren't really workable for today's, you know, what we need to do in a courtroom, how we work without air conditioning and, you know, the, the, the shortfalls of the buildings. That's interesting that you, you know. Uh, I just want to say one more thing before you leave. I got to know Tom. I got to know Vinny uh, from Court TV. These people were there every day. Afterwards, they did they, 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 uh, listen to the uh, trial and then they would go on usually live afterwards out back. I always remember this, Tom and Vinny and uh, the ladies and they would talk about what happened that day uh, during the trial. And uh, before I go, when we uh, when he was found guilty, um, we had this lady that used to be in the courtroom every day and she'd be smiling at him and saying, oh, we're with you and everything else. And then when he was found guilty, we were bringing him out. I'm holding him, bringing him out with another guy. She tries to run up and she says to, she says to him, why did you have to kill her anyways? <laughs> and I sat there and I'm like, what is she talking about? For the last five weeks, she was the most pleasant little lady in the world. Now she wants to go after him. And I'm sitting there going, ah, oh, this is this, this is so bizarre. But one thing is Tom wrote a great book about this. I've read it. I tell everybody about it. Murder Wellesley. Matter of fact, I, I just had a doctor the other day and I was telling her about it because, uh, uh, you know, I, it's it's amazing when you hear about famous people, doctors and doing these things to admit that it's just mm. crazy. Bill and Tom. I can't thank you enough. This has been fabulous. And I just wanted to reiterate the name of the book, A Murder in Wellesley. And where can somebody find the book if they want to purchase it? Uh, Amazon's your best bet. It's still on there. I think it's in a paperback edition now, but uh, you can still get it. Bill and Tom, this has been great. Thank you so much. The name of the book again is A Murder in Wellesley by Tom Farmer. Diane, it really was an amazing story, and uh, we had two great guests, another terrific podcast. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. My pleasure. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey, true stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.